Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask, if you're a fan of the show, to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with us once again is Robert May, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Linguistics at the University of California, Davis. And he's here to talk about Frege and the Problem of Identity. Robert May, welcome back. Thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure to be back. So the problem of identity is a big one in 20th century philosophy. And it goes back to the work of the philosopher Gottlob Frege, who we've talked about before a little bit on the podcast. Maybe we could just start by setting the problem up. So what is the problem exactly? Well, that's an interesting question, Matt. One very general way of putting it in a way which you often hear put in sort of your first class in uh, philosophy of language often, it's what's the difference between A equal A and A equal B? And that's a very general way, and there's all sorts of things that people say about this. My interest is in the way it presented itself in the work of Frege and to Frege in his time. It's a very interesting problem. We today often think of this as kind of a problem that sort of occurs to Frege and is discussed by him, but yet it was actually a very general problem at the time Frege was writing. It was well known, and it was well known in the context of the type of project that Frege was concerned with. If we look, what we see is that there's kind of two ways that people looked at it at the time. There was a way in which it was presented to Frege, and there's a way in which Frege presented it back, if you will. The way it was presented to Frege, it became a problem in the context of what was truly Frege's life's work, his mathematical project which we know is logicism. So in a very general way, logicism is a problem that goes you know, really back to the ancients. And you can trace it through all sorts of areas of philosophy leading to the late 19th century. And it's the idea that if we really understood how people actually understood thinking in some very deep way, the following would become manifest, that fundamental aspects of mathematics are just reflections of reasoning. But Frege's great breakthrough was that he took the idea that mathematics and our understanding about logic had advanced to the point where with certain new logical insights about logic, this project, logicism, could be accomplished for the most fundamental area of mathematics, arithmetic. So what Frege's project of logicism is, it's the reduction of arithmetic to logic. But Frege's great insights, or part of Frege's great insights, arise uh, because to make this reduction require deep insights, which are core to our thinking of logic today, and which originate from Frege and his first book written in 1879, Begriffsschrift. So the first thing is that the importance of the puzzle and the way it is it comes to be and thought about in Frege's work is one is trying to understand this logicist project. Now, central to the logicist project is if it's going to be a reduction of arithmetic to logic, 
it must be the case that there are no residue of irreducible mathematical terms. All of them have to somehow be analyzed as logical notions. And Frege does this, and partly the way he does it is in his very famous uh, logical definition of the natural numbers. But the key notion for our concern today is with the notion of identity. So if we look at a simple arithmetic sum, 2 plus 3 equals 5, the concern is what do we mean by that double bar that we write down? If it's to be a notion which is a mathematical notion, a notion of arithmetic or mathematical equality, then of course, and that was not reducible to some logical notion, then of course it would be the case that Loach's project would simply collapse because it would fail to be what Frege took it to be, which was a reductionist project. So Frege has to introduce some way of thinking about arithmetic equality, which is logical, and he does this by bringing into his system an idea which is, originates with Leibniz. The idea that arithmetic equality could be reduced to objectual identity. The notion of identity which applies to each object uniquely so it's a very general notion, and this is why Frege took it to be a logical notion. It's the same notion we find when we say that evening star is the morning star, when we say that Cicero is Tully, when we say that Mark Twain is Samuel Clemens. Frege takes that very notion to be the same notion that we find in 2 plus 3 equals 5. So given its absolute generality as a notion applying to all things, Frege took it to be a logical notion and indeed, if any notion of identity is going to be logical, it's going to be the notion of objectual identity. So this notion that Frege, as I said, borrows from Leibniz is essential to his logicism. Now, once we have that in place is when the first problem of identity, what I've called in my work Leibniz's problem, emerges. And it's the following. If 2 plus 3 equals 5 is just nothing more than an objectual identity, saying that what occurs on the left-hand side of the equal sign is the same as what occurs on the right, that is the number 5, then how is it that 2 plus 3 equals 5 differs in any way from 5 equals 5? It should have the very same, as we would say, propositional or, if you will, mathematical content. But if so, then it would seem that by making the necessary move about identity to make the program reductionist, Frege has evacuated his theory of having any mathematical content because it would be the case that 2 plus 3 equals 5 would reduce to the mere triviality that 5 equals 5. And that would seem to undermine Frege's logicism. In fact, this is exactly how it appeared to Frege's contemporaries. Uh, we find in various places in the contemporary literature, in particular in the work of uh, Johannes Tome, who was the professor of mathematics at Jena, University of Jena in southeastern Germany, where Frege, in fact, also worked. We find it in, one, in the work, in a very famous work called Science and Hypothesis by Henri Poincaré, who was one of the most famous mathematicians of the day. So it was a known problem, and it was taken to be directly a knockdown counterexample to Frege's logicism. And moreover, not only was the knockdown, it was one that was easy to understand. So I've been able to explain it to you within the last five minutes just what this problem was in the, exactly the way that it presented itself to Frege's contemporaries. So Frege needed a response. He needed to say something about this. And here's where we get the second way of looking at the puzzle. First way I've called Leibniz's problem, the problem of 
2 plus 3 equals 5, and 5 equals 5, in fact, don't differ in their content. And so we have no mathematical content at 2 plus 3 equals 5 above and beyond what we have in 5 equals 5. And that seems a counterintuitive result. Frege overtly takes the, an underlying premise of this argument to be a complete error. He takes this argument to be a mistake. And the mistake he takes it to be that 2 plus 3 equals 5 and 5 equals 5 have the same content. His view is they just have different content. They're simply different mathematical content. 2 plus 3 equals 5 expresses that 5 is the sum of two other numbers, of 2 and 3. And that certainly isn't expressed directly by 5 equals 5. So five equal, 2 plus 3 equals 5 has a different content, different propositional content, different mathematical content, then 5 equals 5. And Frege takes this as a given. So the way Frege sees the issue, it's a kind of residual issue. It's, okay, these have different propositional contents. How do we come to recognize this difference? How does it become cognitively significant to us? How has it become something which is, makes a difference in our mathematical cogitations? So for Frege, the question is a very different question. It's a psychological question. It's a question about how we as agents, as knowing agents, come to be an appropriate cognitive relation to the different contents of these two propositions, or two thoughts, as Frege would call them. So for Frege, in understanding the problem of identity in Frege, we want to distinguish two things. One, Leibniz's problem, which is a problem about propositional or mathematical content. We want to distinguish that, and Frege rejects this, and we want to re distinguish it from what Frege thinks is an issue, that is Frege's puzzle, which is a cognitive issue, and a more general issue about how we come to have scientific knowledge. And Frege poses it that way. So there is an issue in why is it that 2 plus 3 equals 5 constitutes not just mathematical knowledge, but scientific knowledge, as opposed to 5 equals 5. So, those, that's the way it presented itself to Frege. Over the years, it's come to be understood in many different ways, and there are very different interpretations of it. But for Frege, it's an issue, ultimately, in how we come to acquire scientific knowledge in particular, and one might argue how we come to have knowledge in general. Okay, so we have these statements that we're calling objectual identity statements, and these are things like, Samuel Clemens is the same person as Mark Twain. Or maybe we don't want to say same person. Maybe we want to say just Samuel Clemens and Mark Twain are identical. That would be what we were calling objectual identity statements. And then there are also these arithmetical identity statements, which are like equations that you'd see in a math class. So 2 plus 3 equals 5 is the example we've been working with. And Frege wanted to draw an analogy between these two cases. So he wanted to say that Samuel Clemens is Samuel Clemens, is kind of an obviously true sort of empty statement in just the way that 5 equals 5 is an obviously true, obviously empty statement. And um, Samuel Clemens' Mark Twain is an informative statement, just as 2 plus 3 equals 5 is an informative statement. I guess it's not hugely informative because we all know that 2 plus, but you know, it's more informative anyway than 5 equals 5. But the problem, once you draw this analogy and you understand the statement 2 plus 3 equals 5, basically to be kind of like unpacking the definition of five or something and two plus three equals five. Ultimately, maybe it's not obvious, but ultimately being something that's true by definition and that's where it gets its truth from, then the statement two plus three equals five starts to seem kind of trivial. 
All right, so maybe we all know that 2 plus 3 equals 5, but imagine a complicated equation, right? If I don't know uh, whether some complicated equation is true or false, then you know, am I not really understanding the meaning of terms like 5? If I don't understand that some complicated thing on the left-hand side of the equation is or isn't equal to it? And so Frege's answer to that objection, we've been saying, is that the expressions 2 plus 3 and 5 differ in their content and... Therefore, it's not trivial to say 2 plus 3 equals 5. What they do differ in is their psychological effect on us, and that was the thing that Frege thought was important to explain. Is that about right so far? Well, I'd make a couple of remarks, I think. The first remark I would make would be relative to your point about there being an analogy between Mark Twain is Samuel Clemens and 2 plus 3 equals 5. To Frege, they're just instances of the very same case. And that's because Frege took numbers to be objects, a particular type of logical object, consonant with his logicist goals. Now, that turned out, as we know, to be a highly problematic assumption because of what's known as Russell's paradox. We can set that aside for the moment. But I think to Frege, these are completely analogous cases. I mean, there's not that they're like each other. He has a very definite view about what numbers are. And on the basis of that view, he takes whatever account he's going to give of 2 plus 3 equals 5 is going to be a general account. It's going to apply to the evening star as the morning star. Uh, it's going to apply to any case in which we have two names for the same thing, regardless of their domain. So there's one question, I think, an issue that comes up in what you said. A second issue is, you said that these statements are informative, and we have to be careful what's meant by this. Certainly it's the case that if I know that 2 plus 3 equals 5, so I've either I've learned how to do simple sums, certainly the sentence 2 plus 3 equals 5 doesn't help me or add to my knowledge. It doesn't give me any new information. But that's just not relevant to the concerns here. The concern here is that 2 plus 3 equals 5 has a certain, expresses a certain thought. That thought is a different thought than what's expressed by 5 equals 5. That thought is a thought which is a mathematical thought. Okay? And coming to know that thought involves a certain type of cogitation. Now coming to know here means, you know, computing it. And once you've computed it, you don't have to go back and recompute it. Okay? Uh, moreover, there are ways in which you, knowledge can be conveyed to you verbally. Something that's taken to be a true assertion may be made and you take it as such. But there's something fundamental about a sentence of the form 2 plus 3 equals 5 where we have to somehow figure out at some point that two names, in fact, are names of the same thing. We have to go through that cogitation. That's the significant part here. So it's a claim about the semantic nature of particular thoughts or propositions, and how that can give rise to knowledge, as opposed to whether a given instance or utterance of a thought is going to be informative to you as a particular agent. So I think we want to keep those particular points clear uh, as we sort of think about how Frege is thinking about this. His goal is about scientific knowledge. So it's, you know, these identities can be very, very complex. But the simple examples make the point. Frege is famous for using these examples as an occasion to illustrate a distinction he drew between what he called sense and reference, 
which you might think of as something like two different kinds of meaning an expression can have or two different ways an expression can mean or something like that. So the you know, reference of an expression is the object in the world that the expression stands for, and the sense of an expression is, well, there are many ways of understanding this, but a standard way of understanding it is it's a way of referring to an object in the world. So, so for example, the expression 2 plus 3 and the expression 5 have the same reference, that is to say they stand for the same number, i.e. 5, but they kind of get to the number in a different way. They get to the number via a different route. In other words, they have a different way of referring to the number. So they have the same reference, but they have different senses. Once we've introduced that terminological distinction, haven't we solved the problem of identity? <laughs> we haven't solved the problem of identity, but we have taken, in Frege's view, a necessary t step towards solving the puzzle of identity. It all depends what we think the puzzle of identity is. Remember, for Frege, the puzzle of identity is fundamentally epistemic. It's how we come to have knowledge. So one, we have to say, what do we have in coming to have knowledge of, and what's the process by which we come to have knowledge? The notion of sense for Frege, to understand it, we have to understand that there's two important parts. There's one, the one you mentioned, in which we can think of sense as the way of thinking of an object. But these senses can also be composed, and they can form complexes, and these complexes Frege calls a thought. So if we have a sentence like, 2 plus 3 equals 5, that sentence will express a particular thought, uh, the thought that 2 plus 3 equals 5. And that thought will be made up of component parts, particular senses, number 5 given as the sum of 2 and 3, and the number 5 given as the successor of 4. And what's identified and what's said to be the same is their references, the number 5. So we have the notion of a thought. Given that we have the notion of a thought as this composition of senses, Freya then postulates a particular psychological account of the way we relate to thoughts. And it has two parts. One is what has been known as grasping a thought, which is when one grasps a thought, one comes to know the content of the thought. One comes to be able to think that thought when one has grasped it. But grasp in and of itself is not sufficient to tell us whether the thought that we've grasped is true. So I can grasp the content of the thought that Frege smoked a pipe, but just grasping what that means doesn't tell me whether it's true or false. So the second part of Frege's account is that we have to somehow figure that out. We have to be able to somehow figure out whether a thought is a true thought or a false thought. And he calls this figuring out judging. Judging is an overt psychological act. It can bring in all sorts of information from all sorts of sources. And when we have brought that, all that information to bear, then we'll end up with what Freya calls a judgment, some thought that is known true in the sense of being established. So for example, we would take the Pythagorean theorem as a judgment in the sense of being an established or known truth. Now, when we've grasped a thought, we've got some material to work with. We've got some information to work with. And that information is what we're going to use to, in making a judgment, in act of judging. So I have the information that we have 2 plus 3, which is a sum. We have the information about 5. And now we have to figure out, on the basis of what we've been given by grasping the thought, 
whether in fact 2 plus 3 equals 5 is indeed a true thought or not. So on Frege's view, there's this complex psychological theory, this complex account, in which we, one, we grasp a content, and then having grasped a content, we then have this further cogitation. And this further cogitation is one which leads us to come to know whether the thought that we've grasped is true or not. The role of sense is to provide us with some baseline of information, some fundamental information, that information which we utilize in ascertaining whether the thought is true or not. We now have the sense reference distinction. So if we have the sense reference distinction in hand, what we have it when we grasp the thought that 2 plus 3 equals 5, we have it that on the expressions on either side of the identity statement express different senses. Now the question is, why does that matter to us? All we have is that, the actually an objective fact about a particular thought. What we have to do is embed this in our theory of knowledge and how we come to have knowledge via making a judgment in order to see that we actually have an account. And here's where Frege's notion of cognitive value comes to play. So when we grasp an identity thought, like 2 plus 3 equals 5, and we thereby recognize that we have different senses, we now know we have a particular judging task that faces us. And that judging task we will have to undertake with a certain degree of cogitation. I'll have to compute something, I'll have to compute a sum, and given that I can compute that sum, I will come to know that 2 plus 3 equals 5 is indeed true. So once I've established that it's true, then I have knowledge. Okay? Because I now have a thought, it has a content, I've grasped that thought, and I know it to be a true thought, and that for Frege is what constitutes knowledge. So in the case of 5 equals 5, however, Something different happens. When I grasp it, my job is done. I don't have to think anymore to discover whether it's a true thought or a false thought. Merely grasping it tells me that it's true because I have the very same sense. I know those two senses determine the same thing. I grasp the sense of identity, and hence, once I put all that together, I will know immediately that I've grasped a truth, job done. In the case of 2 plus 3 equals 5, that's not the case. I have to somehow do something more. And that extra cogitation is what Freya calls a greater degree of cognitive value, is that I have to think more in order to come to have knowledge. It's a further cogitation that leads to knowledge above and beyond merely coming to understand the content of a thought by grasping it. So while knowing that there are differences in senses is in fact necessary for the account, it's not sufficient because we don't, haven't made the jump from the structure of a thought to knowledge. And that's what's the key for Frege, because what he's trying to say is that there's a difference in the significance of 2 plus 3 equals 5 versus 5 equals 5 epistemically. And for that, we have to embed it into an epistemic or cognitive theory. Yeah, so Frege writes that the sentences 2 plus 3 equals 5 and 5 equals 5 differ in cognitive value. and I guess there are various ways of sort of understanding that notion of cognitive value. And one traditional understanding of that notion of cognitive value is something like one we talked about briefly earlier, like informativeness, like 2 plus 3 equals 5 is somehow informative, whereas 5 equals 5 is completely trivial. And it seems that you're recommending actually kind of a different understanding of the idea of cognitive value from that. It seems that on your interpretation of Frege, 
saying that two plus three equals five and five equals five different cognitive value isn't talking about how informative the statements are. Rather, it's talking about the mental process you would have to go to to figure out whether or not they were true. And so two plus three equals five. You can just see right off the bat before you even bother to figure out whether it's true that you're going to have to go through a different mental process to figure out whether it's true than you are with five equals five. And that's really what Frege was getting at. So it was really more like almost you might call it a grammatical difference between the statements two plus three equals five and five equals five. Two plus three equals five has a plus in it, which means you're going to have to do a different kind of work to figure out the relevance of the plus part of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, I think there's a couple of uh, aspects what you ask. First of all, I think insofar as we call two plus three equals five versus five equals five, one informative and the other not, I think if we're just talking about what Frege's vision is, it's just a rephrasing of what I've said. Informativeness, insofar as it's going to be an interesting notion, is not something which is going to just be about a thought itself. A thought in and of itself is neither informative or uninformative. It simply has the structure it has. It becomes informative if it can lead to knowledge. And so the only qu the question that arises, how does a thought lead to knowledge? What's the process? Um, and is there a difference? And that's what Frege is saying. There's a fundamental difference in the sort of knowledge that you can get out of 2 plus 3 equals 5 and 5 equals 5. And one is in some way significant, has greater cognitive value than the other. So in certain sense, I don't think there's any real difference between calling it informative. Okay? I think what's key to Frege, and I, th I sort of intimated this a moment ago, is that his view is very different from a, a view that is much the view of his critics of the day, which is a view that would be very Kantian in its sense in trying to just say, look, the difference between 2 plus 3 equals 5 and 5 equals 5 is just a difference in the nature of the logical forms of these, that one is analytic and the other is synthetic. Now, Frege, this is not an acceptable position. And it has to do with the difference in view about the status of arithmetic judgments between Frege and Kant. So for Kant, 2 plus 3 equals 5 is a synthetic judgment. For Frege, it's an analytic judgment. And so for Frege, 5 equals 5 and 2 plus 3 equals 5, from the point of view of the Kantian distinction, are no different. They're both analytic propositions. So the Kantians who would make what I called Leibniz's problem, present Leibniz's problem to Frege, is mainly coming from Kantians. Poincaré was a well-known Kantian in his views about mathematics. They would say, look, to Frege, one, this is a counterexample to your claim, deep problem, but also we have an account because two plus three equals five is synthetic, five equals five is analytic, and this is a very general claim because even you, Frege, agree that general scientific propositions are synthetic as well, as opposed to trivial identities. So there is a view which one could take, which is that, look, it's just a difference in the structure of the proposition. One's analytic, the other is synthetic. This is a view that Frege rejects, and he does so on principled grounds. Uh, one set of grounds I just gave, grounds about mathematics and arithmetic, the other being grounds about logic. Frege founds the notions of analytic and synthetic in notions of logic and the nature of proof. And these are very different notions because 2 plus 3 equals 5 and 5 equals 5, from the perspective of their proof, their logical proofs, qua logicism, would be no different. They would both be analytic, as Frege makes them out to be. They're both logically justified. 
So for Frege, it's important, I think, to understand that, yes, there's a significant claim about the structure of the thoughts expressed, that there is a fundamental difference in the structure and the content of the thought that 2 plus 3 equals 5 and 5 equals 5. These are different thoughts. Uh, they are different contents. The problem, insofar as there is an issue, is how do we recognize, we as cognitive agents, how do we recognize that difference? And given that we recognize that difference, what's the significance of that in our attainment of scientific knowledge? That's the way Frege considers the issue. So maybe just to run this through another example, would it, is it the case that any arithmetical expression that sort of differs in its grammatical shape will differ in cognitive value? So, I mean, do the expressions 2 squared and 2 plus 2 differ in cognitive value as well? Well, let's remember that expressions don't differ in cognitive value. Thoughts differ in cognitive value. It's a thought that has cognitive value. 2 squared and 2 plus 2 will ha express different senses. I mean, bear in mind that arithmetic, mathematics, in one way are the easy cases. They're the easy cases because they kind of wear their sort of thought structure on their sleeves. So our representations, in Frege's case, since these are arithmetic propositions, arithmetic thoughts, they would be reducible to logical cases, their representation is transparent. In Frege's logical system, his Begriffschrift, there's going to be a transparent representation of the thought expressed. If that's what the Begriffschrift is designed to do, to simply be a way of representing thoughts. And it's intended to do so in a completely transparent way. Presumably, all scientific languages should be this way. They should be transparent in this way. So in a sense, we could conflate without any real loss, a formal mode of description with a material mode of description. Because it's a transparent representation, we can talk of things in terms of the representations, their grammatical structure, if you will, and that will not be harmful given that we understand what is being represented, the nature of the representational structure of the language. Things aren't so easy when we get to things like natural languages and even some scientific languages where we'll have terms which, so to speak, pack in a lot of information. So while it may be the case that we just sort of spell everything out descriptively in the context of mathematics, we don't do so in other languages. So for the case of Mark Twain equals Samuel Clemens, if we were to apply the Fragian story, we have to say that Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens, as proper names, express different senses, and those different senses pack in different information. And that, that information is something which, in some way, you as a speaker, qua knowing agent, can unpack. So the idiom of mathematics is very precise, and uh, maybe this doesn't always happen, but mathematicians, I think, typically try to avoid undue ambiguity um, in their proofs. And so you might think that there's not too much room for confusion about the number five, right? You might think that the sense that I assign to the number five is pretty much the same as the sense that you assign to the number five. But maybe it's different for names. Maybe your way of thinking of Mark Twain is different from my way of thinking of Mark Twain. So is there an additional degree of messiness in ways of referring that take place in actual human languages once we leave the realm of mathematics? 
Well, that's a, that's a really good question, Matt. It's a very complex question, which has uh, animated a lot of discussion in Frege and trying to understand the notion of sense. Frege has a very famous footnote in his most famous paper on sense and reference, uh, in which he seems to imply that different speakers could associate different senses with one and the same proper name in a language like Mark Twain, the case he uses Aristotle. I think that in one way this is an interesting question, in another way it isn't. So the goal here, remember, is for Frege to try and understand why it is that a sentence of the form, we can now talk more generally, A equal B has greater cognitive value than a sentence of the form A equal A. And the count we've given is one which says, well, they are different thoughts. You grasp that they're different thoughts. And in virtue of grasping those thoughts, we will know that one will involve a degree of cogitation that the other will not. Now, notice if that's all that's involved, all we need to be able to ascertain is that we have different senses. Because all we're trying to account for is a difference in cognitive value. Now, the way that I, as a grasper of a thought, may go about doing things, because I believe that certain information, particular sense, is associated with a given proper name. I may go through a particular route to getting to that Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens is true, than someone else might, because they utilize different information. So the characterization of my thought process in terms of the information I use may be different than yours. But my way of thinking, sort of the procedures I use, are no different than yours. And those are the, what gives rise to greater cognitive value is that procedurally we have not differed at all. We've gone through the same procedure. So what's critical is that I recognize that there's a difference in the senses between what's expressed by Mark Twain and Samuel Clemens. And here we seem to have a basic presupposition about the nature of language, that if we have different proper names, they're there for a reason. The reason that they're there is because they are associated with different meanings. And the key here is that what we mean by being associated with different meanings is that they express different senses. And that's what's really critical for the importance of characterizing the difference in cognitive value. Not whether you and I think that there are different senses associated with each of these proper names. Take the sentence, the philosophy department has 60 PhD students in it. So you and I, we both know different things, we've had different life experiences, and therefore in trying to figure out whether that sentence is true, we're gonna bring different stuff to bear on it. We're gonna bring different considerations to bear. So in that sense, the process of figuring out whether that sentence is true is going to be different for the both of us. Nonetheless, the thing that we're trying to figure out, whether it's true, the claim, as it were, that's the same between the two of us. So that's the important point. Right? Yeah. yeah, I put it a little differently than you did. I would agree, the claim, or what Frey would say, the thought is the same. We're trying to figure out the truth of the very same claim. I would also say the process is the same, okay? Now, if I look inside your head, and I see what's going on, I'll see a thinking process. That thinking process will be bringing in all sorts of information based on the fact that you happen to be a student here at the University of Chicago, you happen to know a lot about your cohort of graduate students, and so on and so forth, and all that will become important for you to get to the end result, okay? But the nature of your actual thinking process, the nature of the procedures your mind goes through, it's no different than mine, who isn't a student here, never was, 
maybe I read about it in the philosophy department newsletter, I read about it on your website, I bring all sorts of different things. But again, look inside my head and the very same kinds of psychological processes are going on. So the question is, for Frege, do I have to go through these kinds of processes? Do I have to undertake this kind of procedure or not? That's what it amounts to. Look, for some people, you know, uh, there may be some thoughts which for you, given your knowledge and your particular expertise and your passions and so on, may be very easy for you to figure out. And for me, I could figure it out, but it would be very difficult, take a lot of time, I'd have to go and learn a lot of new things, and so on, and vice versa. That's not relevant. Um, it's not that cognitive value is sort of a measure of the sort of, of cognitive units that you have to use, how much time, how much cognitive time or cognitive effort. It's simply a characterization of whether this additional cogitation, that is what you actually have to think to figure out, bring in information above and beyond what you have from simply grasping the thought in order to determine, figure out, whether the thought that you have grasped is true. That's the critical difference for Frege. So why do you think the problem of identity is a philosophically important question? Does it tie into other issues in philosophy? Uh, does it come up, you know, sort of in our everyday lives? What do you think is at stake in uh, sort of getting this question right? Well, the question of A equal B versus A equal A is a question that we find since Frege, which is where in the analytic tradition we sort of focus, even though it's not original with him, it's certainly the focal point for the problem analytic philosophy. And arguably, it's the or problem of analytic philosophy. We find it everywhere. There isn't an area in philosophy in this tradition where it doesn't show up. And it's a wide range of issues. Obviously, we've been talking about ones which have to do with logic, philosophy of logic, philosophy of language, philosophy of mathematics. But it's equally an issue in metaphysics. For example, how is it? It's a very widely discussed issue, contemporary metaphysics, about, well, look, if A equal A, why isn't A equal B just the fact that A equal A, that something is identical to itself and hence gives us no information? Why is that a different fact? Is there something in the sort of fabric of the world that is A is identical to B? Or is it just the trivial notion of self-identity? We find it in metaethics. So uh, in my last podcast, I was discussing uh, pejoratives. And a question that arises there is that one view, not the view that I hold, but there's one view in which statements like Jews equal kikes is true. And certainly is intended to mean something different than Jews are Jews. Another area in which we find uh, the issue is in belief. Okay, so the entire discussion about belief context whether we have Max believes that Mark Twain was a great author, but Max doesn't believe that Samuel Clemens was a great author. That becomes a significant puzzle because Mark Twain is Samuel Clemens. Again, the problem of identity. It's not a significant puzzle because Mark Twain is Mark Twain. So we find it all through our views about propositional attitudes and the epistemic significance of that. Metaphysical issues, issues in language, our understanding of metaethics, mathematics, logic, all through the areas of study in contemporary analytic philosophy, we find the issue of identity is fundamental to our thinking. So 
It's not one of those questions that pops up like, what is the good? Issues about what is the nature of meaning and language, which I think people sort of understand why philosophers would be interested in them directly or what their significance is to everyday life. But it is something that runs through all of our thinking in analytic philosophy, certainly in the analytic tradition. And so I do think it's really one of the, if not the most important issues in philosophy. And our understanding of it is one that animates almost all of our philosophical thinking. Robert May, thank you very much for joining us again. Thanks very much for having me again, man. It's been a real pleasure. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Music